The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. saying about trusting in you, our Redeemer. We, we sang it as a declaration, I will do that. And we want to do that and need your help to do that. We are people prone to wander with hearts that are prone to wander. We take in truth and it runs out of us through all the cracks and the holes we leak, and so fill us up. Fill us up with hope and with truth. Fill us up with the glory of your redemption. And then give us strength to, to hope in you. To remember you and to turn to you and to find life in you. I pray this for myself and for, for those, my brothers and sisters here, and for everybody who, who might listen to this at some other time. Lord, would you come and draw near to your people, each one of us, and us corporately, and give us help. Help to hope in and to find strength in you, our Redeemer. As we consider today the issue of, of wealth, money, resources, Consider it again, would you help us to hope in you, to find life in you, and from that then, not, not replacing that, but from that then to use the wealth that you've loaned us, to use it wisely. But Lord, I, I stand here maybe today particularly, particularly aware of of our inability, of my inability to communicate anything that, that is life-changing, that matters. I am a person and we are people and we use words of the English language. But it will be nothing unless you give it life and make it run and press it into us and change us. Help us to hope in you, our Redeemer. Open the word to us this morning and, and cause us to hear it, produce faith in us. That's our prayer. Would you clear away all distractions, all, all things that are spiritually distracting, whether it be sin in us or, or spirits in the room, Lord, clear them away and cause them to have no effect on us and, and speak. There is only one clean spirit one Holy Spirit, and would you commission him to move through this place and have all authority here to carry your truth to our hearts and to lift up the Son for his glory and for the blessing and for the good of your church. Make that happen, Lord. Clear away all distraction, physical also, noise and temperature. Clear away all mental distraction, the thoughts of the week and thoughts of other things that we have to do later. Have your way with us here now and speak and cause us to rejoice and to rest in you, our Redeemer. 
do this work for our good and to honor your name. We trust this to you, Lord, and ask you to do it now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 16 and another parable. The chapter began with a parable, you'll recall, the story of the dishonest but prudent manager. Jesus told that first parable to disciples to bring up the subject of wealth and teach us how we should live here now with what we have been loaned during this, this temporary short-term life. We've been loaned wealth and, and we're supposed to use it like the manager in the story, wisely, prudently thinking, I have this for a short time, how can I use it for the future to, to, to gain benefit for myself, future benefit, and in our case, true riches, true treasure in heaven a greater intimacy with Christ, and as he says also, friends who have gone before us to welcome us into the heavenly dwellings. In other words, influence people towards Christ. That's the language of verse 9, a, a generosity, a, a gaining friends for ourselves. It's a colorful way of getting at the importance of being generous with our wealth so as to influence people towards Christ. We be generous with our wealth to show other people the generous God who has, in fact, poured his generosity on us and through us on them. That's kind of how Jesus intends us to think about wealth that we have, conduits of it for the world, to commend him and to commend his grace, to commend his generosity, to show what he's like to others, to love him ourselves and to not love our wealth, but to love him ourselves and to show others how lovely he is. That either or is where the passage ended, you'll recall. With an either love mammon, earthly wealth, or love, serve, depend on God, but you can't do both. So he called us to love one, to love God and not mammon. That was the word to his disciples, but then some Pharisees heard it and they mocked him. They scorned him for his teaching. This is what we saw last week. As he turned then to deal... Not turn from disciples to deal with this, this ridicule coming from the disciples, coming from the Pharisees. And they're not ridiculing him on the surface for saying that we should love God more than money, of course. They would have agreed with that. But they're ridiculing him for the extremity of it all. The, the radicalness. He's calling for a, a complete surrender of self. And they didn't like that. Because they themselves were their own authorities. They loved themselves, and they loved money, and so they wanted to tell themselves that that was just fine. So they ridicule him for this extreme view of give up, give up all wealth and, and give up everything to God, lay it all on the altar before him. They thought, no, this is, in fact, right for us to hold it back and, and to love it and use it for ourselves. So he interacts with them as the king, as a king of a kingdom, declaring to them authoritatively, who is in charge, not self, but he himself. So that was last week, and that leads him then to tell another parable to people like the Pharisees. So it's related to this parable that we're going to look at is long, it's, it's, it's involved, and it's related to the two passages that have already come before. It's touching on similar things he said to the disciples, but now spoken to a different audience. So it's got a, a different slant to it. He speaks to Pharisees, people who love money. It's a story to tell them, and it will speak to us as well. 
all of us, no matter where we are. So let me read the passage. It is a, it is a lengthy parable. And then I'll make three observations, and hopefully the last one will be short enough to fit in in time. We'll make it work. This is the end of Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 16. Three observations. Here's the first one stated in the negative because the, the parable itself, the example in the parable is negative. Wealth is not loaned to us for self-indulgence. Wealth is not loaned to us for self-indulgence. You could put it positively and talk about it's given to us for generosity, but that was more the first parable. This one is negative. Not for self-indulgence. Look at the general setup as Jesus creates it right after speaking to the scoffing Pharisees who love money. No coincidence, here the main character is a rich man who loves money. In one sentence we get the picture, he is very comfortably wealthy. Fine clothes and sumptuous feasting is his, his daily lifestyle. Which contrasts completely and harshly with the pathetic, and I mean that not in an insulting way, I mean in a true way, a pathetic this is to draw out our emotion. Our, a pathetic, miserable man named Lazarus laid at his gate. Lazarus is hungry. He longs to eat the scraps that fall off his table. He's sick in some way or another. He can't walk. He has to be carried. And he's covered with ulcers, with sores. And then in a last kind of sort of detail, he's not even strong enough to ward off the mangy street dogs. Can you imagine yourself lying there hungry, sick, 
week, and the dogs walk up and lick your sores. The contrast as Jesus creates it is extreme. And so is the contrast that's coming. They both die, and it doesn't matter how or, or when they die, if they die at the same time or die in different ways, it doesn't matter. We have to keep in mind as we read this, this is long, there's a lot of details, we have to keep in mind as we read this that parables, like all illustrations, are made up to show something. They have, they have a point to them. They're going somewhere. So Jesus is trying to, to make a point, and we have to keep our eyes open for the point. And as with any story, ask, what's he trying to get at? And when we think like that, we are safely alerted important to be safely alerted to the things that aren't the point and to read them properly the things that are not being taught as truth but are just part of the story along the way to the point as an example verse 22 the poor man died and was carried by angels to abraham's side literally it's abraham's bosom a sentence which is not the point and so we cannot derive from this sentence any kind of a doctrine that says something like poor people always go to heaven when they die or angels always carry people to heaven or there is such a literal place as Abraham's bosom. That one some people think, actually. Well, you can look back in, in literature and find that the opposite place would be Esau's bosom. Think of Esau and Abraham opposites. Just ways of talking about heaven and hell, to use our words. Jesus is just trying to say, in the vernacular of that day, in the build-up, Lazarus died and went to heaven. And the other guy didn't. The rich man died and was buried. You see the contrast. Carried by angels, buried. Put into the ground, not up, but down. Put into the ground, and while in Hades, the place of the dead, and it would be just that generically, but when used in a contrast like this, it would mean the place of the unrighteous dead, what we might call hell. While in Hades, he is there in torment, and he sees far away Abraham living there with Lazarus at rest. He lived filthy rich in the lap of luxury, and now he is in the place of the dead, in hell, in torment. And far away is Abraham and Lazarus in comfort. If you've been traveling through Luke, you might realize something as soon as I say it. This is just another way of depicting chapter 13's banquet feast. Different word, different image, same idea. There it was a, a building, a banquet hall. And on the inside was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can check chapter 13, verse 28, you can see this. In, inside there is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And on the outside, locked out, can't get in. Outside looking in are the people who missed the kingdom and are in, it says there, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, torment and anguish and flame. Different words, same idea. 
So if we think about parables, it's trying to understand stories, we should, we should ask, so is it, is it torment, or is it anguish, or is it gnashing of teeth and anger and, and weeping and sorrow? Is it flame, and is it consciousness, because this guy's you know, being burned by a fire while he's carrying on a conversation? That doesn't happen. We have to look at all those, all those details and say, don't miss the, the true for the literal. What he's trying to depict is that this is an awful place. Mixed with every kind of terrible emotion. Anguish and torment and sorrow and anger. How do you have a conversation while being burned with a fire? I don't know, that's not the point. It's torment and anguish and sorrow and loss. Outside, can't ever get in. Is it a building or is it a, is it a, a, a great big like plateau on the other side of a canyon. Not the point. It's not where you are. And you can't ever get there. That's the point. That's where the rich man is in torment. In verse 24, he asks for mercy from Abraham. Send Lazarus to help because of the anguish. And Abraham rebuffs him by pointing out the reversal of the, of the contrast. You know, Child, you used to have everything, and now you have nothing. And he had nothing, and now he has everything. And then the rich man, further conversation, verse 27, asks, and following, asks Abraham to send Lazarus then to his family to warn his brothers, lest they come into this place of torment also. And here now, finally, we're at, we come to the point. One that is a very pointed attack on the Pharisees who loved money and held the position that wealth and prosperity was a sign of God's blessing on righteous people. Because they, they mistakenly read or selectively read the Old Testament and they would say things like, well, doesn't, doesn't the blessing of the covenant say that if you walk in God's ways, he blesses, and if you don't, he curses? So therefore, if we're blessed, we must be walking in his ways, right? So are you wealthy? Well, then you're righteous. God's blessed you. You are so blessed by God, you righteous person, you. Enjoy it. He's given it to you as a reward for your righteous walking with him a reward given to you to be used for you. You blessed person, you. That was their perspective, which may sound familiar because a lot of people think like that today. Even within the church, some of us think like that. And it's codified in some religions. You must be doing well because you're doing well. That's how they thought but quite obviously, as Jesus tells this parable, everything in it is shaped to say no. The rich man, the Pharisees, they have it wrong. It's, it's almost in the words of the, of the rich man himself as he pleads with Abraham to somehow warn his brothers away from his own path. We felt it from the very beginning as we've watched the parable build these contrasts. This man used wealth. He was given wealth for just a moment in life. 
He was given these, these good things, and how did he use them? To indulge himself. And we feel, as we look at the pathetic Lazarus lying at his gate, and we see the dog licking the sores, we say, that's, that's wrong. What's he doing? Given great wealth, he used it only for his own pleasure and turned a blind eye to human suffering right at his own doorstep. And now he suffers forever. It's clearly wrong. That's, that's unavoidable here. Or you could turn it around. You could say in the words of the previous two passages, which is completely connected to this, the rich man did not live prudently. He loved money. He loved wealth. He served the wealth. He lived foolishly to enjoy the good things of wealth in the present only, and he did not think wisely about how to send it on ahead of him, how to win for himself friends who would welcome him into the heavenly dwellings. But there isn't anything in the future for him. He has nothing now and no friends to welcome him, and he isn't there. Oh! Instead, he's outside the kingdom in anguish. All that he had, all that we have, it is only ours on loan from God who truly owns it. Jesus taught this in verses 10, 11, and 12 and illustrates it vividly here. Given worldly wealth for a moment, what are we to do with it? Not what this man did. Not what the Pharisees did. We are loaned it not for self-indulgence, but rather to let it flow generously to bless the world in Jesus' name. And in so doing, win for ourselves kingdom friends and true riches in heaven. And we do that in part by meeting the needs of others around us. Lazarus had friends. Obviously, they carried him, and obviously they laid him at the rich man's gate because they saw Lazarus has a need. This man has means. Maybe they'll meet them. Well, in the providence of God, that's how his kingdom and his creation, how his loaning is supposed to work. We are blessed to be blessings. Not blessed to be blessed. Blessed to be blessings. He's going to bless us and then lay people at our gate, so to speak. Puts them in front of us. Puts the money in our pocket, if you will, so that we will reach in there, take it out and say, here, in the name of Jesus. Whatever the, whatever the needs may be. Some of them tangible, some of them, some of them physical, some of them not even really needs, just ways to be generous to people, to serve them and to love others generously in the name of our generous God, not to use it just to bless ourselves. I think that's clear. So why is that hard for us? Well, sometimes we probably wonder whether we're enabling somebody or whether we're actually helping them. And sometimes we wonder what exactly we should do or where exactly we should give. But beneath all those questions, I, I think it comes down to a couple of issues. At least as I look at myself, I think it comes down to a couple of issues. 
are we going to run out of what we think we need for life? To put it another way, we doubt that God will give us this day our daily bread. And then tomorrow, again, that day our daily bread. And then the day after, again, that day our daily bread. We think, if I, if I give it away, it's not going to come. I'm, I'm going to be a conduit, but the water's going to run through the pipe, and then there's going to be nothing coming in behind. The well's going to run dry, I think. And secondly, I need that for life. I need that for real, true, abundant life. That's where I find myself. And if I don't have it, what do I have? Will he give materially? And, and if he doesn't, will I have what I need to find life without the material? Which raises in us really, really the question of faith. Which is the whole point. The whole point. God does this. God puts money you want to make it real simple. God puts $10 in my pocket and creates a $5 need in me and the person next to me to see if I'll trust him to give five away. And then next, he'll put $5 in my pocket and create a $5 need right there and a $5 need right here and say, now will you trust me to give that $5 away and have nothing? The whole issue is, will you trust me? He does this, he works in this way to create a, an issue, to create a context in which faith can be tested, faith can be stretched, faith can be grown. To give us opportunity to, to love other people with the resources they need, but to love other people with, with the thing that they actually need. What does the other person actually need? What, is, what do people around us actually need? They need the, the $5 need met, yes. But the, more than that, they need God. And to see me say, or to see you, to see a person say, I know this God. And I know this God will meet my daily need. He will give me my daily bread today, tomorrow, the next day. And if he does not, if the cattle stall is empty and the fields go barren, I will still have a God who is good. I will still have life because I don't actually need the stuff here. They need to see a person who knows God and has been set free from the love of money. They need to see through me to see a God who is enough. So God creates opportunity. He creates people with need at our doorsteps and says, here, let the money flow through you. Let the wealth flow through you to them. Don't bottle it up and use it to indulge yourself. We in the West and in America and maybe even in this church in particular, we are wealthy and perhaps need to consider this more than some others do. So consider it and ask, is repentance in order for how you've used your worldly wealth? We have dealt with, it is likely that we have dealt with the worldly wealth given to us in some way 
inappropriately. So sit and ask God. Ask him to grow in you generosity and to lead you into repentance. All around us, he puts people in need and he means for us to give, to let the the wealth that he gives to us flow generously through us, not stopping us, but to flow generously through us to commend the gospel, to commend the generous God to them. People all around us. And if we're honest, more people than we can handle. So what, what do you do with, with all the need of all of the world all around you? What do you don't do with all that need? You can only deal with some of it. So God will, in, in some way, bring some people particularly to your very gate. He'll bring some needs particularly to your very gate. Deal with those. But the, but the way you start, really, is by becoming more generous. Lord, help me to grow in generosity. And I mean here more than 10% generosity. Do you realize the tithe is not actually taught in the New Testament? The 10% tithe. It's mentioned a couple times, not taught. Instead, the New Testament teaches an, an attitude, an, an ethos. And can you guess what it is? Like the, the old joke, I, I saw this about some new administration's tax plan. How much did you make last year? Send it in. That's God's giving plan. Much of you, how much have you got? Put it on the table. All of you. That, that's God's ethos. How, how much do I give? Everything. No, no, I meant how much I write the check for. Oh, that's, that's, that's maybe a different question, but you can't answer that question properly until you've given everything. Until you've put all of you on the table. That, that's the ethos of the New Testament. All of you on the table. Joyfully surrendered. Then you got to write a check. Yeah, okay. Then, then you have to write a check. But you, you, can't, you can only write a check joyfully, generously, once all of you is, is in. Once you're, once you're all in. That's what God calls us to. Which is a high calling. We'll talk a little bit at the end about how the word of God helps us get there. But you got to see... We can't, we can't put a number on that. We can't put any kind of specificity in that because it's going to immediately then call us to the number. When God calls us to, to surrender, God calls us to a joyful generosity, not a number. So all of you, here, Lord, here's me. And everything that you give me and everything that I am, all of my wealth, all of my resources, my, my money, my time, my house, my car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all there for you. In some way, I want to use it to let it flow generously through me so that people will see, somehow through my generosity, will see you. I don't want to just bottle that up and use it self-indulgently. That's the first point. The second one moves us beyond just worldly consequence to eternal consequence. The second observation. 
eternity hinges on whether we love God with our money or just love money. Eternity hinges on whether we love God with our money or just love money. You've got to understand the eternal consequence piece of this. The rich man appeals to Abraham for mercy, and the answer is no. Not an angry no, but almost a sad no. Abraham calls him child. As an adult man, a grown man. He calls him child, a term of endearment, which also recognizes this man's ethnic relationship to Abraham. He's affirming, you are racially, ethnically connected to me. But that's not the connection that matters. So no, there is no mercy for you. He is clearly, eternally condemned. Why? Because of how he dealt with his earthly riches. And, importantly, what that reveals about him. So verse 25 is kind of taking us towards Jesus through Abraham's little speech here is not teaching something like everyone gets a certain amount of wealth and unfortunately you already got yours. There's not a finite amount of wealth. The point rather has to be seen in conjunction with the first parable as an opposite illustration. He just taught that we are to use earthly wealth to gain true riches. He could have used that earthly wealth to gain even more and even better wealth, but he didn't. And so he's left without. He has nothing. He should have used his wealth differently. But we need to keep thinking about this because if you just stop there, we might run adrift of another problem, the idea that we can earn salvation by how we spend our money. You could look at the first parable, perhaps, and you could say, I'm going to earn for myself a place in heaven. I'm going to earn for myself people to welcome me into the earthly dwellings. That's what this guy didn't do. Ah, I'm given wealth to give me a way to get myself into heaven. Some people could leap to that conclusion. I should give away my, that's what I should do. I should be generous. I should give it all away in droves, and the God who's watching will say, there, there's a person who was generous, that's going to be heaven. That was this guy's problem. He didn't do that. No. That's not what's going on. This is not just about be obedient, give away your money, and I'll see you're obedient, and therefore, because of your obedience, I'll reward you with heaven. The test is not about what you do. If we only look at that level, we're missing. We're missing what Jesus is getting at in verse 13 in the middle of the chapter. It's not about what you do, it's about who you love. That's the key. Who has your heart? What has your heart? Now, at this point here, I probably had, during, during the week, I probably had four, maybe five people say they were really looking forward to this passage for different reasons which is always terrifying to a, to a preacher because then you say, like, oh, man. <laughs> like somebody says, I'm really looking forward to dinner, and you know you ordered out taking pizza, you know? Like, like, oh, man. Should have, like, cooked up something good. But, but that being said, I think probably the thing that I was looking forward to about this passage is, is here. 
at this point. And I hope I can communicate it because it's subtle. There's a, there's a test here that eternity hinges on. What did you do with your money? And importantly, what does that show us about you? What does that show you about you? The what does it show you about you is the piece that I'm most interested in. You love one or the other. You love mammon or God. You, you serve one or the other. You give your heart to. You look for provision from. You depend upon. You think life is found in. You trust in one or the other. Only trust in Christ and Christ crucified is what gets a person to heaven. And what this man has clearly revealed here is that he did not trust in Christ and Christ crucified, but actually loved his money, just like the Pharisee did. That's what's going on on the surface. And the, the, the importance of saying, man, eternity hinges on that. I had better pay attention. I had better evaluate myself. I had better see which do I love. And then we create a mistake. Often I think we create a mistake. We then move on and try to address directly, a little bit like I just did, address directly and only the symptom or the evidence. Questions. Eternity hinges on what I do with my money. Questions then come in like, what am I doing with my money? How much money should I give away? What kind of a car should a Christian drive? Can, can I justify that round of golf I just played? The second latte I just bought? What about that vacation home I own? Missing the point. Let me change the words and try to show what I mean here. What money is and how we're using our money whether we are using it for self-indulgence or whether we are using it generously to commend God, that whole dynamic, the money and how I use it, is symptom. Maybe I might say evidence. And if I'm a person that has, as I do right now, a little bit of, little bit of a shoulder kind of looseness, and every now and then something gets kind of caught up and my fingers are tingling. I have found I can make that go away with 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. Fixed. No. Can't feel it for the moment. If I just address the evidence, if I just address the symptom, I haven't actually got at what's beneath that. If I just say, I'm going to give away more money and I am not going to drive an Audi, well, good for you. That hasn't actually got down to the issue. This, this is trying to say, what's up here, the evidence, the symptom, is trying to ask for you and answer for you. And one day at the judgment seat, will be asked and answered by God. Trying to ask and answer for you, what has your heart Not, where do you spend your wealth? I don't care. Nobody cares in and of itself. The issue is, what has your heart? This is what's most important about this passage for me. It, it gives me, it gives me a, an evidence. It gives me like a little symptom flow chart to look at and say, to ask myself, 
what does this show me about what has my heart? Not even necessarily other people who might misinterpret or, or might look at me living in a certain house or driving a certain car and say, I know what has his heart. And they might, they might be wrong. To ask myself, what has my heart? Well, I don't know. Let's put some money in my pocket and see. It's, it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a way for me to, to look at myself. Knowing that one day God will look at me. So he and I now have something to talk about. Lord, what is it? What has my heart? Show me. Am I actually one who serves mammon or do I serve you with the mammon? Question to ask me for me. Question to ask you for you. For you to ask you. It all came out in the wash at the end for the rich man. We, we discover what has his heart. But if we'd asked all along through his life, we would have we had, as outsiders, we would have had some suspicion. And if he'd asked it, he would have known. I don't give a rip about that guy. What has my heart are the clothes and the food, the life and the comfort and the ease. I serve mammon. There's the evidence. There's the evidence. So take a step back. Take a step away from the money, away from the application, away from, from thoughts about how do I give money away and how much should I bless this person with and, and look at what's actually on the table here. Where's my heart? I had for, for years and still do had a particular hobby that involved investment of time and, and some money but the resource of time particularly and dealing with symptom, dealing with evidence repeatedly, I went through a process three times of divesting myself of that, of getting rid of it. Getting rid of it. Getting rid of it. An example might be, an example that makes some sense maybe, is if I'm driving a fancy car, I get rid of the fancy car. And then eventually I buy another one. And then I get rid of that one, convicted that I'm spending too much money, too much wealth on earthly goods, and I get rid of that one, and then I buy another one. And then I get rid of that one. And what I realize is I'm dealing with evidence, I'm dealing with symptom here. What needed to happen was I need to deal with God, not the wealth. And if you deal with God and God becomes the one in whom you hope, the wealth will sort itself out. You either drive that car, live in that house, or you won't, and it won't matter. Is Christ your hope? Is Christ the one in whom you find life? Is Christ the one for whom you live and, and who you want to be spent for and to spend for? Is Christ the place where you find your joy? 
Is Christ what you want to commend to those around you? These are the kind of questions that you, you can and should ask yourself. And maybe to kind of truth check, you should say, let me look at the evidence. Let me then look at the money, the wealth. But go that way. Don't look at the wealth first. Go through the heart. Go through Christ first. Some of us, as we examine that, some of us may find, maybe you will find, and maybe God will open your eyes and graciously show you that you are like this rich man. And you, in fact, have just loved mammon, and you've never actually trusted Christ. Most of us, though, I think will find, I am a Christian, but I see in my life varying evidence. I want to be more. I want to be more in service of and in love of this Christ. Lord, help me. Would you address the root issue? Don't just, don't just change my giving habits. Address the root issue of who has my heart. Would you, Father, would you help me? Would you commend to me this generous God and woo my heart towards him? And for that, he has given us the scriptures, which is the third point. The word of God is sufficient for this, for those who have ears to hear. The word of God is sufficient. The rich man is concerned about his family, and he begins his argument with Abraham about how uh, they need to be told. And Abraham says, well, they have the scriptures, they have Moses and the prophets. Uh, Jesus just called it the law and the prophets. They have the scriptures. And he says, nope, that's not enough. After all, I didn't listen to the scriptures. So they need something more. They need a, they need a man to come back from the dead. And he probably means Lazarus, kind of like Samuel came back from the dead. Not actually to rise and physically walk on the earth, but to kind of appear as an apparition of some sort and to speak to them, this is the case. Probably means something like that. But Abraham says, nope, they don't need that either. Because the issue is not an evidence problem. The issue is a heart problem. They have the scriptures. That's enough. Enough for what? Not. Abraham is not arguing, and we, we are not arguing here, that what they really have is they have the Bible that, thank goodness, will tell them not to love mammon, but to love God. Well, the Bible says that. Everybody knows that. They all agreed with that. What's, what does he actually think will be communicated to his brothers or to us? What will be helpful to be communicated to us? Certain, yeah, the command, sure, okay, yes. But what would be helpful? What's the real issue? What have we just been talking about? What the scriptures would do that would be most helpful to us in the power of the Holy Spirit would be to communicate to our hearts the beauty, the loveliness, the trustworthiness, the goodness, 
the generous nature of the God of the Bible. Not to just tell us to serve him, but to show us how wonderful he is and how, how reasonable and how right and how, how fitting and how good and how desirable it is to be joined to him. To show us, not just black ink on a white page, but by the Spirit's power to illumine, to show into our hearts, to shine into our hearts the glory of this God and to win us to him such that we could say, yes, all of me, here, here, here. That's what the Bible is sufficient for. That's what God uses the Bible for. He births us through the word and then sanctifies us through the word, not just by command, but by showing us himself, by showing us all through the scriptures, the goodness of God, the sufficiency of God for our life, that he will not run dry, he will indeed meet our daily bread, and even if for a time he deliberately does not, he himself will not forsake us or abandon us. We can keep our lives free from the love of money because he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and I am enough for you. We find that in the Bible, confirmed when one rose from the dead. But we find it in the Bible. This is the God who is good. This is the God who is so generous that he gave his own son to us and then the son himself gave himself up and gave up all right to be regarded as God. He became poor for our sakes that we would become rich. Receiving from him true riches, everything that we need, receiving from him, him. We need the Bible for this, and as was prayed earlier, God, would you make us a people who spend time in the scriptures to see you, and when our hearts are wooed to the generous God and convinced that he is enough, all the money will sort itself out afterwards. You are very free with stuff you don't care about. Come to my house, I'll loan you my lawnmower. It's broken down anyway. You can have it, frankly. Why can I say that so honestly? Because I don't care about it at all. Not at all. The stuff that decreasingly holds us because something else increasingly holds us. Stuff that decreasingly holds us, we'll let that flow away. But the key first is a heart that is fixed on him and sees in him his good generosity. This is the answer to greed in our hearts and is the answer to need in the world. The world cannot solve greed and the world cannot solve need. The gospel solves both. It solves greed in our hearts as someone else, God himself, comes to grip us, and then our grip loosens increasingly so in everything else. And then, as that happens, solves need in the world. Only the gospel solves greed and need. If you find yourself greedy, the answer is don't become more generous. The, the answer is not become more generous. The answer is find God as my hope, and you will become more generous. The word
is sufficient for this, to show us the goodness and the generosity of God by his spirit. And that's then what moves us to use the money that we have to bless others and not just to be self-indulgent. Let me pray. Father, would you use your word in our lives day by day by day by day to show us your goodness, to convince us of it, to show us our security in you, to convince us of that, to show us the the reality of of a life of a future rest and convinced of that to cause us to rest now. To not live in turmoil, to not live chasing the wealth of the world, but but letting it flow through us to others. There are a hundred decisions Maybe some of them press into our minds. A, a hundred decisions as to what to do specifically about this, that, or the other. Would you give your people first these convictions? That you are good, that you are ours, that you are enough, that you're not leaving, that we are safe. And give us rest as we then make decisions. Trusting that whatever decisions we make are under your hand. Give us that kind of hope. To move us to be a church, Lord, to be individual people and to be a church that's generous. Showing that we are freed from the love of money and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and therefore love our neighbors as ourselves. Make us that kind of people, please, please, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.